Let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the blessings that you have bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus and in the gospel. Lord, thank you that we have you through being adopted as your children through Christ. Lord, that we belong to you because Christ has purchased us with his holy blood. Lord, this is um, a mercy and a grace that we cannot fathom. It is far beyond, Lord, what we deserve. And yet you have given it to us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, some of the hymns that we sang remember the incarnation of Christ. Lord, he came into this world and he was born to live a perfect life that we could never live and then die the death that we deserve. Lord, thank you that you raised him from the dead and that you have given us freedom in him to know you and to worship you and to have fellowship with you. So Lord, as we open your word, we ask that you may teach us from your Holy Spirit, that you may use me, Lord, as your mouthpiece today to give us your word. And Lord, that you may be with us as a congregation to lift up prayer before you in confession and adoration and thanksgiving for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to fellowship with you more. Help us to pursue you more in relationship with you through Christ, uh, through what we do today. And may you be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand with me? We're going we're gonna to read from Psalm number 16. Psalm number 16. So I don't think we have it on the PowerPoint because it was just last yesterday that we decided it. So Psalm number 16. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have, the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The hymn that we sang earlier just a moment ago, you may be seated, says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold or houses or lands or men's applause or worldwide fame or anything. It ends by saying, he's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. And that, that theme of that hymn is closely aligned, not in the words, but in the thought of today's psalm. 
And another, another hymn that, that we love to sing, we sing here often, has the same theme. Be thou my vision. It's number 176. And you, I'm sure, remember the lyrics. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. So the idea of these two hymns are the same. And the, the theme of the psalm is the same. God, I want my focus to be on you. You are my focus, my hope, and my delight. You are the best thing that I have. This is the psalm that David sings, and, and Spurgeon calls it David's golden song. It begins with this prayer of, of, of God's deliverance and refuge in some unspecified, uh, some unspecified trouble. But it continues to abound in holy confidence, and then it closes with a definite assurance of God's ultimate safety and joy. It's a hard psalm to organize. It doesn't really fit into any nice categories. But, but we can find five glorious truths here in this psalm. That God is the Christian's refuge. That God is the Christian's joy. That God is the Christian's portion. God is the Christian's counselor. And God is the Christian's hope. So let's look at these one through five. Firstly, God is the Christian's refuge, verses 1 and 2. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He starts with a prayer, of, 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 a prayer to God for his preservation. And what could cause him to pray like this? We, we don't know. We, we don't know if he was facing some kind of military problem, uh, problem at home, um, fleeing from Saul, fleeing from Absalom. We don't know what it is. Perhaps his life was in some um, mortal danger. Perhaps it was a, a moral problem, a temptation, dealing with the weakness of his flesh. We don't know. But the point is David needs help, and so he prays to the Lord, O oh God, preserve me, for in you I take my refuge. And then he follows that with a, a statement in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And this might be a little confusing. Well, what is he saying? To the Lord, you are my Lord. It's, it seems kind of redundant. It's helpful to recognize that the first Lord is in all caps. It is the covenant name, Yahweh, the, the covenant name of God. And he addresses Yahweh and he says, you are my Lord, my Adonai, which, which also means master, um, ruler, Lord. And he is saying to the Lord, to, to Yahweh, that you are my master because masters in the ancient world were responsible completely for the care and for the security and for the protection of their servants. So not only is it an expression of his submission to God as my God, as my master, as my Lord, but David's also saying, God, you owe me. You are responsible for taking care of me. I need you to take care of me in this trouble. And then he ends by saying at the end of verse 2, I have no good apart from you. He has no good apart from God. And this is true in, in at least two ways. One, he has no good with which he could pull himself out of his trouble. He has no resource. Uh, he can't fix himself. He has to depend on God because he has no ability in himself. And in a second sense, he has no moral goodness 
in himself. He, he is reliant on God's mercy and God's grace. It may be that David was facing a temptation, a, sin to, a temptation to sin or a moral struggle. And, and he encountered his own weakness and his inability to overcome his own flesh in the daily trials of life. And in that situation, he needed the Lord's deliverance and help because he had no reservoir of righteousness of his own. He had no goodness apart from God, apart from the goodness and the righteousness that comes from God. So that's where David is. And in fact, that's where we are every day of our life. We, we may think that we have another source of refuge, another source of protection, somewhere where we can go and get uh, help apart from God. But, but we don't. We are absolutely dependent on him for all things. And especially we're dependent on him for uprightness and right standing before him. We are sinners in need of his grace and we have no goodness in ourself. Our goodness is in God alone. And in, there's other Psalms that echo this phrase. Asaph in Psalm 73, 25 says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. David depended on and he desired the Lord. In what do you depend? In what do you take refuge? Where do you draw from? Where does your reservoir in time of need? We have nothing but God. We have no backup plan. We have no good in ourselves or in our abilities. We are dependent on the grace of God in Christ. God is the Christian's refuge. Secondly, God is the Christian's joy in verses three and four. Let's look at three and four. David says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Then he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So in, in three and four, we see these two groups of people. There's a bit of contrast, two groups. The first group of people in verse three are the saints in the land. They are the true worshipers of God. They are believers. And then the second group in verse four are those who run after another God. They are the idolaters, the unbelievers. What is the experience of the unbelievers? If we look, verse four, it says, the sorrows multiply. Their sorrows multiply. In contrast, what is the experience of the saints? It says, by taking refuge in God, by relying on God, by trusting in God, worshiping God, David says he delights. They have, he has joy, a life full of joy and delight. God is the Christian's joy. And that's here in this verse, but it's, it's, it's really mixed out and interwoven all through the psalm. God is the Christian's joy. It culminates in verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. There's another contrast in verses 3 and 4 that relate to how David interacts with these two groups of people. How does he re relate to the saints? It says, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. To him, they were excellent. He, he loved God, and because he loved God, he had a love for the people of God. And so they were excellent ones to him. In, co in contrast, how did David relate to the unbelievers? In verse four, it conveys a sense of pity. You know, it's, it sounds very sorrowful. Oh, the sorrows of those who run after God multiply. They, they are so sorrowful. 
I am not going to participate with them in their false worship. And that's what he says. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So he declares that he will not participate in their idolatry. Spurgeon says of this verse, the same loving heart that opens to the chosen people is fast closed against those who are in rebellion against God. Not closed in the sense of like, I'm just you know better than them, but closed in the sense of I want to worship God and I don't want to affiliate with anything that diminishes my worship for God. And in fact, I want to share the gospel with these people because of the multiplication of their sorrows apart from Christ. Which group do you see yourself in in these verses? Of course, I don't suppose many of us pour out drink offerings. Right? We don't have a little idol at home or it, the, 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 the idolatry of our day is not the same as in David's. But nonetheless, Calvin said, and I think it's true, that our heart is a factory of idols. We chase idols in other ways. Anything that comes between me and the Lord is an idol. Anything that is so important to me that I will sin to get it or sin if I don't get it is an idol. And anything that I look to for fulfillment or satisfaction apart from Christ is an idol. The thing that I think that I need or the thing that you think that you need that will bring you fulfillment, not in God, is, is an idol. The, the passage is very clear. The sorrows of those who run after idols multiply. The joy of those who fellowship in God also multiplies. God is the joy of the Christian. So the, this gives us an opportunity to ask ourselves a question. Where am I looking for my joy? Where am I looking for my satisfaction and fulfillment? Am I delighting in God? Am I turning to God to my, uh, for my ultimate satisfaction? Um, even when life is not that satisfying, do I find great joy and satisfaction in God? Or am I looking to something else? God is the Christian's joy. Thirdly, God is the Christian's portion. Let's look at verses five and six. David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When you read these verses, what picture comes to your mind? The lines have fallen for me and my inheritance. Does it, does it remind you of any other Bible stories? It harkens back to, to the time when the the, in Moses and in Joshua's day, they were, they were breaking up the land, right? Dividing the land and separating it between the different tribes. That, that's kind of the picture, I think, that is in view here. And David uses this language of, of, of inheritance and lines to refer to the satisfaction and delight that he has found in God. His inheritance is the Lord. His treasure is the Lord. The, the thing that God has given to him that really makes him happy, that really satisfies him, that fills him with delight is God himself. It's not that God has given him such wonderful circumstances that he is just so thankful to God for the, for the great circumstances that he's in. Because remember verse one, he is calling out to God in a time of trouble. So when he says the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, that doesn't mean he's like sitting back and just admiring the, uh, the, the, the wonderful, my life is just so wonderful right now. I'm so thankful to God for the wonderful um, 
circumstances I find myself in. We don't know what his circumstances were, but we know that regardless of the circumstances, he's looking to God. And what he, whatever he's got, or whatever he doesn't have, it's the Lord who fills him with joy. The Lord is his chosen portion and cup. David, the Lord himself was David's inheritance. This gives us a very good lesson and maybe particularly important in the time of Christmas. The secret of contentment is not just appreciating God's blessings, which we should do, but ultimately to appreciate God as the ultimate blessing. Who can say that God has been good to me regardless of where they find themselves? It is the one who finds their treasure in Christ. Fourthly, God is the Christian's counselor, verses seven to eight. Verse seven says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. The Lord has given David counsel. How? Not, uh, I don't think this is referring to subjective relative, relative or revelatory words that, that David received. Oh, of course, David wrote scripture. I don't think that's um, uh, what's in view. Uh, what's in view is the law of God. David delighted in the law of God. In the, in the night, my heart instructs me. It, it harkens back to passages like Psalm 1. On his law, he meditates day and night. Or, or Psalm 119, 148. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. David's meditating and pondering on the law of God. He meditates on them. He comes to know them. He comes to know God's word through the scripture. And by the scripture, God is counseling him. The Lord is my counselor, he says. So then in verse eight, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. He, he, he has set the Lord before him. The Lord comes first in his thoughts, in his priorities, in his focus. And what does this say about his relationship with God? It, it's what he's looking towards. It's what he's driving forward on. It's what he's passionate about. It's what he's living for. His, his life is going towards God. It, it, it's... It brings up um, a memory when I was, my dad was teaching me how to drive a car. I was very concerned about keeping my lane position and I was very concerned about not hitting the other cars from the, that were out to the side. And so I would look, you know, like keep on checking from side to side. And what did that mean? I kept on moving around in my lane. I couldn't keep my lane properly. So then, but when I was told, you know, you got to look far ahead, look down the road and then you'll stay straight. That's, that's, that's how it was. So as long as I focused on the lines beside me, I kept on bouncing around. But when I looked far ahead, I could keep it straight. And that's how David is looking at God. He's aiming at God. All the rest of the things that were going on in his life, he could see in his peripheral vision, right? In his rearview mirror, maybe. But his focus was fixed on God. If you want to use New Testament language, he had his mind fixed on things above, not on things that were on earth. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. And then he ends in verse eight by saying, because he is at my right hand, I am not shaken. So it makes me a little bit dizzy to think God is before me and on my right hand. Well, maybe he's like facing sideways or something. To David, God is all encompassing. He's before me. He is at my right hand. He is at my side. He is my security. He is providing protection and strength to me, as well as he is the goal that I am aiming towards. You know, God is, uh, to David and to us, uh, not only 
a goal to run to, not only our aim and goal, but mercifully, God is also at my right hand, at your right hand. Sometimes we don't just need a, a goal to aim at, but we need someone to lean on. God is there for his people. He is both. In the New Testament, Jesus said, um, when he's talking to his disciples in the upper room discourse, he says that, that he will leave, but he will send the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor, to help them, to be with them, to come alongside them and to be their comforter. God is the Christian's comforter and he is the Christian's counselor because the Lord is beside us. He is our goal and our aim and our focus and he is also our help because we so easily lose focus. He gives us perfect counsel in his word. He gives us direction and focus in life, assistance and stability and security. And so that's why David could say, because God is with me, I am unshakable. Do you ever feel shaky? Do you ever feel in need of assistance and stability because of the trials that you're facing, because of your, your fleshly weakness? Isn't it wonderful for that those who know the Lord, he is at our right hand. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord has given us his word to counsel us, even um, sometimes it, in, the, in the late times of the night? Isn't it wonderful that the Lord has said he would never, never leave us or forsake us? Nothing can shake us because God is with us. Fifthly, God is the Christian's hope. Let's look at verses 9 to 11. Whatever had David's heart troubled, whatever it was, as he meditates on God, he abounds in holy confidence, and this confidence overflows in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. He is not just a little bit glad, but he is, his whole being rejoices and his flesh dwells secure. Every part of him has joy and satisfaction in God. The Lord is his strength. The Lord is his counselor, his portion, his joy, his refuge. His whole heart and being and flesh, all of him rejoices and dwells secure in God. And then in verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It's, it's somewhat of an unexpected turn. We have this crescendo of gladness and then he begins to turn his thoughts to the grave. I didn't see it coming. David is, is so thankful, so joyful, so confident, so secure. And then he talks about the grave. Why does he do this? Well, it, it shows that the, it shows firstly the depth of his security and trust. Not only does he have joy and security in God for now, but his confidence as he contemplates the grave extends beyond death. He's thinking about his death and even in that time, a thousand years before Christ, they didn't have a fully um, orbed view like we get in the New Testament. But even then, his hope in God didn't end. He looked forward to God's continued faithfulness even beyond death, that God would not abandon him that God would not allow him to see corruption. We know that Sheol here is referring to, to death, the grave, because the following line, um, you will not let your holy one see corruption, it, it, it gives us the, the interpretive key. 
So David is anticipating his death, but even in death, he trusts and believes that God will not abandon him to the grave. He has a hope for a resurrection, for life after death, because of his trust in God. And his trust is ultimately, uh, it's so clear, it's ultimately in God because he says in you so many times here, you are my portion. My whole life is rooted in you. I have no good apart from you. This is something that we can experience and relate to. You know, even in, for us, our hope is, um, for the believer, our hope in life and in death is not in ourselves, like David. It is in God. The Heidelberg Catechism says, as, a, as one of its questions, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to, to the ultimate reason for David's composition of these verses. He is not only um, addressing here his own death and his own hope of resurrection, but, but, the, new, but the Holy Spirit is, 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 is using David to prophetically look ahead to their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Verses 9 to 11 are quoted um, in numerable, um, a number of places in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and he goes to this verse, and he reads through verses 9, 10, and 11 in his sermon, and he says, David had this hope, but he died, and his grave is here to this day. But... David was speaking prophetically of the Christ, that God, would net, that God would not let the Christ see corruption. David was speaking ultimately of the resurrection, and that's where Peter goes to in his sermon in Acts 2, that Christ, whom you put to death, by the hands of, whom God put to death by the hands of lawless men, God has raised to life. And he is the one through whom forgiveness and uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins is being preached and he has sent his Holy Spirit. And that's the point that, Paul, uh, that Peter makes from this passage, that it is pointing to Christ. And Paul also uses this passage in Acts 13. He again explains, David had this hope, and yet David died, and he remained in the grave. And ultimately, this, this, this fulfillment in, 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 in Psalm 16 was talking about David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, who would not see corruption, but who would be raised on the third day. It is this one Paul and Peter declare in their sermons who grants forgiveness of sins and freedom from everything from which they could not be freed from by the law of Moses. So David's hope in verse chapter 16, uh, rather Proverb Psalm 16, is not only expressing his hope in God, but prophetically pointing us to Christ to the, the foretelling of his resurrection, that God would not allow his Holy One to see decay, but would raise him up in power and thereby declare God's satisfaction with his death, with Jesus' death, that it would atone for the sins of his people. God raised him to life for our justification. So d does this mean that this passage, it's, it's pointing to Christ? Does that mean that David didn't have a hope for resurrection? Does it mean that we don't have a hope for resurrection because it's a prophetic? No, no. It means because 
of Christ's resurrection, we will have a resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The resurrection of Christ fills us with our own glorious hope for our resurrected bodies, that God who raised Christ from the dead in like manner has a heavenly resurrection body prepared for each of his saints, Christ the firstfruits, and when he returns, those who belong to him. God is the Christian's hope, a living hope that will never perish, spoil, or fade away. Finally, let's look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think if we look at the progression of David's thought, the beginning of the psalm, he affirms his trust in God and life. Then as we get to verses 9 and 10, his trust and hope in death. And now in verse 11, he's looking forward to the life after death that he will spend with God. After the grave, he says, you will make known to me the path of life. He's talking about the glories of heaven, I think, in this verse. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. But it's not just a future hope. It's a present hope as well. Because David rejoiced in the presence of the Lord, even as he was looking ahead to the fullest and the truest joy that he would have in God. Happy is the man who focuses his life on God. The Christian life, it's not described in this psalm as a drudgery, just as like a dreary, a dreary endurance race. It is an endurance race, but it's not a dreary endurance race that we do as a duty as miserable as, we, you know, as, miserable as it is. That's not the song that David sings. He, he delights in the Lord. The Lord is his refuge. The Lord is his joy and his portion. The Lord counsels him. The Lord is his eternal hope. There is more pleasure in God, David says, than in anything. Anything that the world offers. And that brings us back to the, the same theme that we were reading and that we were singing in our hymns. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Be thou my vision. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. John Piper said that there is no way of fighting sin that he's found that's better in the long term than finding greater pleasure in God. The glories of Christ far outweigh the fleeting pleasures of sin. And we could add, far outweigh the fleeting trials of life because actually it's through those trials oftentimes that God reveals himself to us and we have deeper fellowship and relationship with him. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So just to close, what kind of relationship do you have with the Lord now? Are you looking to the Lord as your sole source of joy? Are you delighting in him? Is your focus on him? And then I have to ask this of myself. Is my focus on him? Is he my chief delight? Is he where I go to to receive strength in time of need? Honestly, I think we must admit, all of us, along with David, Lord, I have no good apart from you. We need the Lord's mercy so that we could pursue him as David pursues him, so that we can find our delight in him. May God help us. May God help us to commit to pursuing God as our chief delight, as David did, 
And may God help to remind us through this passage ultimately of Christ. It, it is the glory of knowing Christ and it is the grace of what Christ has done for us um, that is the motivation and also the power to seek God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we have in this psalm David's declaration of delight in you, how he found refuge in you, how you counseled him, how you gave him joy, how you provided him, Lord, with refuge, and how you gave him, with, gave him hope. Lord, our hope is in Christ. David was looking ahead and we don't, uh, I don't know fully, Lord, to what, he, to what extent he understood what he wrote, but Lord, you know that it was the Holy, your Holy One, Jesus Christ, who would not see decay, that you raised from the dead on the third day, Lord, whom has given us forgiveness and repentance and forgiveness of sins. Uh, Lord, is the one that allows for us to have a right relationship with you. Lord, we are very weak and we so easily stray to idols. We so easily, Lord, get wrapped up in the busyness of life. We look to other things, maybe our work or relationships or our kids or pleasures, Lord, other things apart from you. We look to them and rely on them, Lord, as our source of strength or satisfaction or fulfillment in this life. Lord, forgive us. Forgive me. Help us to find our delight in Christ, in knowing him. Help us to say like David, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, thank you for the mercy that you have given to us, that even though we are weak, you are strong. Even though, Lord, it's so easy for us to lose our focus, but you have washed us clean by the blood of Christ so that we may have fellowship with you in him. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.